for them the stab in the back legend was the one way to explain and this is a, a, a story out of German mythology uh, and to them uh, the home front had uh, stabbed the army in the back the army was undefeated the home front with the liberals with the socialists and the Jews the home front had actually uh, 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 committed a, a, a crime of treachery that's Professor Hartmut Lehmann, one of the experts that I interviewed for my film, Theologians Under Hitler. He's speaking of the stab-in-the-back theory, which the Nazis used to oversimplify Germany's loss in World War I and to demonize their opponents. We're going to get into that in this episode, but first, we're going to explore the world that gave rise to the Nazi party and attempt to find some of the social trends that provided fertile ground for Hitler's rise to power. It's been almost 85 years since Nazi persecution turned violent on November 9th, 1939, the night we know as Kristallnacht, or the November Pogrom. What can we learn from this period of history that might inform us about our own time? What forces were at work then that we might identify in our own country today? And how might we better understand the role of the church an institution that seems to call forth the very best and the very worst from us. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I'm your host, Reverend Stephen D. Martin. I'll reemphasize my basic understanding that you will hear throughout this series, that the rise of the Nazis cannot be understood by looking at Hitler alone, but by understanding how German society was looking for new answers, how institutions were actively broken down by the Nazis prior to coming to power, and how democratic institutions in the period between the two world wars were vulnerable and even used to bring a dictatorship to power. To begin this conversation, it's important to understand the attitudes and grievances that fueled the Nazis' rise. Let's start by diving into attitudes during the 1920s. Remember, this period is right after World War I, but before the Great Depression. The Weimar Republic was the government of Germany from 1919 to 1933. It began after World War I and the abdication of Kaiser Wilhelm II. This period was marked by significant political instability, economic hardship, and social change. Initially, the Weimar Republic was seen as a grand democratic experiment. It had a new constitution providing for a parliamentary system and universal suffrage. However, it faced numerous challenges like severe economic problems, including hyperinflation in 1923 and later the Great Depression. Politically, it was a time of extreme ideologies with communists and far-right parties like the Nazis gaining support. The Treaty of Versailles also heavily influenced the Weimar era as it imposed tough war reparations on Germany, leading to widespread resentment. It was commonly seen as a governmental system that was not German, but instead was a system imposed upon Germany by the Entente, or the nations that defeated Germany in the war. 
Also, don't forget that modern democracy was seen by Germans as a French development, and the French, of course, were the bitter enemies of Germany at the time. The object of much of German grievance was the Treaty of Versailles, the treaty formed after the war ended. The Treaty of Versailles had profound effects on German society during the Weimar period, shaping much of the political, economic, and social landscape of the era. First, let's look at the economic impact. The treaty imposed heavy war reparations on Germany, which had a crippling effect on the economy. The burden of these reparations contributed to hyperinflation in the early 1920s, and ongoing economic instability. This economic hardship led to widespread poverty and unemployment, fueling social discontent. Second, political turmoil. The terms of the treaty were viewed by many Germans as unjust and humiliating, especially the war guilt clause, which held Germany responsible for World War I. The widespread sentiment of the diktat, the dictated peace, eroded the legitimacy of the Weimar Republic as it was seen as the government that accepted these harsh conditions. This fostered political extremism on both the left and the right. Number three, national humiliation and resentment. The loss of territory and the limitation on Germany's military as mandated by the treaty were seen as national humiliations. This damaged national pride and fueled revanchist or revenge-seeking and nationalist sentiments, which extremist groups like the Nazis exploited. Number four, social impact. The economic and political instability had significant social consequences. There was a loss of faith in traditional institutions and an increase in polarized ideologies. The middle class in particular felt deeply insecure, which made them more susceptible to extremist propaganda. Number five, cultural effects. The period saw significant cultural changes with a flourishing of avant-garde art, literature, and philosophy, partly as a reaction to the turmoil and the search for new forms of expression in a changing world. Number six, the rise of extremism. The societal unrest, economic hardship, and national humiliation created fertile ground for extremist movements like the Nazis and the Communists who promised to reject the treaty, restore Germany's standing, and address economic woes. After all that, let's take a break. We'll come back to this in a minute.
Let's start this off with another quote from Professor Lehmann to help us understand the context of what we're discussing today. And then came the war in 1914. Many thought this is now the hour of a new blessing. Uh, only to find out a few years later that uh, everything was in vain, the war was lost. Uh, and uh, this caused, of course, an enormous traumatization. So much of the theology of the 1920s was sort of to explain to the German people that they were God's chosen people. After all, that covenant had a meaning but, and then prepare for a new revival, for a new, uh, well, uh, reawakening, a rebirth of the Germans. The extremist Nazis did not invent their grievance out of whole cloth. The loss of the war was a very bitter pill. And like all difficult national experiences, it's unfortunately common to go looking for someone to blame. During World War I, Germany did experience internal unrest, including a peace movement and a series of labor strikes which had a significant impact on its war effort. These events were part of the broader social and political turmoil that Germany faced during the war years. First, the peace movement. This movement was driven by a growing weariness of the war among the German public. Prominent figures like Matthias Erzberger advocated for a negotiated peace, arguing that the war was leading to an unnecessary loss of life and economic ruin. And then there were the labor strikes. The war's prolonged duration, coupled with severe food shortages and a declining economy, led to widespread discontent among German workers. This discontent manifested in strikes that disrupted war production. In January 1918, for example, more than a million German workers went out on strike, demanding an end to the war and better working conditions. These internal issues did indeed contribute to weakening Germany's capacity to continue the war. However, they were not the sole factors leading to Germany's defeat. The military situation on the Western Front, the entry of the United States into the war, and the effective blockade by the British Royal Navy were also critical in eroding Germany's ability to sustain the war effort. But to all this, a simple explanation had to be drawn by politicians in order to demonize their opponents. And so the Nazis went to a familiar story from Germanic mythology, the Dolstoss, or the stab-in-the-back theory. There's no better way to empower a political movement than to whip up a shared victimhood and the need for vengeance against enemies of the state. The stab-in-the-back myth circulated in Germany after World War I. This theory suggested that the German army did not lose World War I on the battlefield, but was instead betrayed by civilians on the home front, particularly those who overthrew the monarchy in the German Revolution of 1918 and 1919. Among those accused were the Weimar politicians, socialists, communists, and Jews. This myth was instrumental in promoting a sense of victimhood and betrayal among Germans, significantly undermining the legitimacy of the Weimar Republic 
and contributing to the rise of extremist groups, most notably the Nazi Party. Adolf Hitler and the Nazis used this myth effectively in their propaganda to garner support, blaming the Weimar Republic and various scapegoats for Germany's woes and defeat in the war. The Nazis lumping together of Jews with communists and socialists was rooted in their ideology, which was based on anti-Semitism, conspiracy theories, and a distorted worldview. The Nazis held deeply anti-Semitic beliefs, believing Jews not just as a religious group, but as a separate and dangerous race. They falsely blamed Jews for many of society's problems. To this, the Nazis propagated the conspiracy theory of Judeo-Bolshevism. They claimed that there was a Jewish plot to spread communism and control the world. This was a central part of Nazi propaganda. The Nazis used Jews as scapegoats for Germany's defeat in World War I, the economic crises, and social upheaval. They saw Jews as a convenient group to blame, for both internal and external challenges. In addition, the Nazis were against modernist movements, which they saw as destabilizing traditional values. They falsely associated Jews with these movements, including communism and socialism, as well as capitalism, seeing them as manipulators behind various economic and political systems. The Nazis were obsessed with the idea of racial purity and saw Jews, along with communists and socialists, as threats to their vision of a racially and culturally pure German state. So where did the churches stand in all this? One of the puzzles I've always pondered is if Christianity is rooted in Judaism and indeed owes its very existence to Judaism, how is it possible to be anti-Semitic in the church? Well, over the past 20 years, my eyes have certainly been open to this. So let's dive into how the churches viewed the Nazis' persecution of Jews as the Nazis came to power. In the early 1930s, the church's attitude toward Nazi anti-Semitism was generally characterized by caution, ambivalence, and in some cases, tacit approval, particularly before the full extent of Nazi policies became clear. Many church leaders were cautious in their approach, often focusing more on the preservation of their institutions and the rights of Christian congregations under Nazi regime. There was a general ambivalence towards the early anti-Semitic actions of the Nazis, partly due to existing anti-Semitic sentiments within the churches themselves. While there were some voices within the churches that expressed concern or opposition to the treatment of Jews, these were relatively few and often not prominent. The vast majority of church leaders did not publicly challenge the early anti-Semitic measures of the Nazis. Elements within the church, 
influenced by nationalist and traditionalist sentiments, were supportive of the Nazis' emphasis on racial purity and national renewal, which included anti-Semitic policies. This support was more pronounced in the Protestant churches, where there was a stronger alignment with nationalist ideals. Some of this was theological, based upon a long tradition in Lutheran theology. The primary concern for many church leaders at this time was the relationship between the church and the state. Since the time of Constantine, church leaders have held a lot of earthly power, and this time was no exception. They were often more preoccupied with negotiating their position in the new political landscape than with confronting the moral and ethical implications of Nazi anti-Semitism. In summary, during the early 1930s, the response of the churches to Nazi anti-Semitism was largely characterized by a lack of strong opposition, influenced by a mix of caution, traditional anti-Semitic attitudes, and a focus on institutional self-preservation. In our next episode, we'll take a look at how the ascension of Hitler was viewed by one of the 20th century's greatest Luther scholars, Paul Althaus, who wrote in 1933, Our Protestant churches have seen the turning year of 1933 as a gift and miracle of God. This podcast is produced and written by me, Reverend Stephen D. Martin. I would like to thank those who have taught me about this subject over the past 20 years. Robert Erickson, Susanna Heschel, Doris Bergen, Hartmut Lehmann, Victoria Barnett, Manfred Geilis, Wolfgang Krogel, Rudolf Weckerling, Richard Steigman Gall, Rob Shank, and dozens of others. Please subscribe to this podcast and please consider supporting it through visiting our Patreon page. Thank you and join us for our next episode.